Oh, there's Keanu looking so happy. Oh, and there he is, serving a look on the red carpet. Hmm. Oh, hi. Um, I'm just looking at some photos of Keanu Reeves because he has a new girlfriend. But you know what? We're happy for him, and we're going to be talking all about it on AM to DM today. Then I'm sitting down with Karamo Brown and his son Jason to talk about their new book. We'll see you on the timeline. Back to my boo Keanu. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Safford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. And Alex, I had no idea you were so in love with Mr. Keanu Reeves. You know, like I always say, the bar is so low to be <laughs> for a white man. All you have to do is be unproblematic. Don't be racist. Like, that's it. And you like, get laid. you know, people will love you. It's, so well, yeah, the bar well, is low. Well, and that's how I feel about Keanu. Oh so, my gosh. But we have a really good show today. Karamo Brown is here, as I mentioned. Uh, he'll be talking about his new book with his son. And you have a fun guest too. Yes, Mary Lambert is here. Her new album is coming out. It's out now. Uh, and she's going to be talking about that and her queerness and so much more. And I'm so excited to see her. You all remember her from her collab with Malcolm Moore back in 2012, mm. I think, if my mm. dates are correct, but it was a few years ago. So we're glad she's here, and it's going to be a great time to chat about all those things. Yes, but first, even more Keanu Oh news. my God, we're going Here's back. Here's a tweet, yes, from Brit Hates. Of course Keanu has an age-appropriate girlfriend. He is a good man. <laughs> Here's a treat from Dia. In this house, we love, support, and respect Keanu Reeves and Alexandra Grant. Here's a tweet from Sierra Elmore. I couldn't care less about Keanu Reeves, but his girlfriend is low-key looking back at the camera like, that's right, bitches. So I fully have to stand Miss Alexandra Grant. Ooh, this is the, our favorite couple on the internet today. Yeah. And this is great because Keanu Reeves, I have said this many times on the show, was never a huge fan of him. I've always liked him, but never was thirsting over him. But the internet just can't stop. And now he has a girlfriend, so mazel tov. Yeah, so they've been friends apparently for a long time. Mm -hmm. So now uh, it reportedly has turned into a romance. Uh, and we're happy for him because he's been single for a long time. As far, as far as we know, he's been single. And mm. we are just happy to see Keanu have some joy and romance. <laughs> I feel like he's had a lot of joy with all that money and Matrix money. And I everything. mean, that is also very, I mean, <laughs> yes. He could have always had a girlfriend this whole time. He's just been choosing to be single. <laughs> well, you know, the one thing that I have to say that I, I do love is that in these polarized times, like, we can all be happy for Keanu. Yes. It's the one thing that we can all share and across also, the political divide. And he gives us the reminder that, you know, sometimes your greatest lovers are your friends. Are they? You're lucky. <laughs> are they? Allegedly, I have never had this happen. I've never had someone go from friend to boyfriend or lover or partner or anything. I've had the opposite where you break up and it's terrible and then you have coffee a year later and decide to bury the hatchet and become friends. I will say that, I yes, I have gone from ex to friend, but never friend to romantic partner. Yeah, but so. all the rom-coms always say that's the best route. And yes, we should definitely be taking our advice from rom-coms. I so. do. <laughs> <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> wow. All right. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Have you ever had a friendship turned into a romance? Treat us using the hashtag AM to DM. <laughs> 300 pages of testimony from former Ukraine ambassador Marie Ivanovich has been released. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Miriam Elder. How the U.S. government's fear of Trump's Twitter account totally upended the life of a woman who has served the State Department for 33 years. The State Department refused to publicly back Ivanovich because it was scared of a Trump tweet. Then it recalled her in the middle of the night because it was scared of a Trump tweet. <laughs> Miriam joins us now to discuss her story on the testimony. Good morning. Hi, guys. Hello. Well, let's start off broad. What were the major points of Yovanovitch's testimony? 
So Yovanovitch last month testified for like 10 hours. So she really revealed a lot of information. It's incredibly gripping reading. Uh, and what she revealed is how this campaign to kind of sideline her um, quickly grew in Ukraine with players there, with Giuliani, with uh, Donald Trump's son weighing in and how she was eventually recalled and really abandoned by uh, the State Department for which she'd worked for you know three decades. Yeah, so you mentioned that there was this campaign to sideline her. Can you talk a little bit more about how uh, this fear of Trump's tweets really played out in that case? So it played out in two ways in her life. The first is she's starting to see all these uh, reports in the media, in the right-wing media. She's starting to see tweets saying that, you know, she's a bad ambassador and that she hates Trump and she needs to be removed. And she goes to very high-ranking officials in the State Department and says, you guys, can you please just issue a statement of support from the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, saying that you have full faith in me and that I represent the United States. And that didn't happen. She found out later it's because they were afraid they would issue a statement Trump would tweet something and thus render them completely irrelevant. And then the second time is, uh, you know, the campaign is growing and growing and she gets these calls in the middle of the night. It's really kind of scary to read. And finally, they're like, we need to get you out. It's for your own good. It's for safety. She finds out later uh, that it's because they were afraid that Trump was going to fire her with a tweet like he's done with so many officials. Mm, And why did her safety become the biggest concern for everyone just by uh, a Trump tweet? Did they actually think violence was going to happen if he did fire her? Well, I think that those are actually two separate issues. And there's a part in the testimony where she uh, she recounts this call that she gets from the head of the Foreign Service back in D.C. saying it's a 1 a.m. call saying we need you on the next plane out of there. We need you out. We're afraid for your safety. We're concerned for you. She keeps asking why. Like, do you guys have intelligence that something is happening in Ukraine? And they just keep repeating. Uh, no, we just need to get you out of there. We're concerned for you. And later it emerges. There was no concern for her safety. It really was the concern over the Trump tweet. I mean, all of this sounds just like so unprecedented. And a lot of times when I'm reading stories like this, I have to kind of take a moment to really internalize, uh, you know, just how unprecedented um, it feels. But since since all this information has come out, has there been sympathy for her? What has the reaction been like? Well, just like with anything in this country, there's kind of two sides. There's, you know, the Trump supporters who are kind of sticking to their line that she was a malignant force inside the State Department. But if you talk to people who are still serving inside the State Department, there is a hell of a lot of sympathy for her. This is a person who dedicated her entire career to upholding U.S. foreign policy. She's very widely respected. And there's already issues of morale inside the State Department. And this kind of the way that she was completely abandoned um, by the building uh, is really resonating with a lot of people who still work there. Mm. So, Miriam, how does her testimony serve as a roadmap to the parallel diplomacy that Giuliani was doing in Ukraine? It's really interesting because, you know, she was like the the biggest eyes and ears on the ground for the U.S. in Ukraine. She is the representative of the United States in Ukraine or was at the time. Um, And she just kind of shows how the information came to her from the outside because Giuliani, although she had met with him in the past, while he started running this campaign, meeting with Ukrainian prosecutors, trying to meet with various Ukrainian officials to get them to investigate the 2016 election and uh, Joe Biden Trump's political rival in 2020, she starts getting warnings from various Ukrainian officials, including really one of the most powerful men in the country, um, who's the interior minister. So it's just a kind of different perspective showing how the information was bubbling around on the ground uh, in Ukraine. Okay, so it's a different perspective. um, But what does this tell us about how uh, Republicans have been reacting to the impeachment inquiry? So Republicans have been shouting since the impeachment inquiry started that 
Um, you know, they've been calling it a Soviet style impeachment. They've been saying it's happening in secrecy, which it is per the rules. Um, but what you see now is the lines of questioning that they're pursuing. It's very rare that you have uh, Republican Congress people who are actually trying to get answers. A lot more of the time is spent trying to figure out how information, you know, leaked to the Washington Post. You have examples of them really questioning things that are, are conspiracy theories and trying to get to the heart of it. There is no heart because it's a conspiracy theory. So it's really like watching two parallel universes where Democrats um, going off the whistleblower complaint are trying to get information and Republicans, um, for the most part, are are really treating it um, as something completely different. Mm-hmm. So Miriam, what is next for Yovanovitch now? So Yovanovitch came back to the, was recalled to the United States by Donald Trump, and she's still uh, an employee of the State Department, but she's taken leave and is currently at Georgetown uh, University as a fellow. Um, You know, there's a lot of really dedicated people working inside the State Department who are flabbergasted at what's going on. And a lot of them are kind of waiting it out, thinking that, you know, this this tumultuous time shall pass. Uh, I guess that's a choice that she's going to have to make. Waiting it out. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. A viral article on Facebook convinced Trump's inner circle that Andriy Telehenko can prove that DNC colluded with Ukraine. Here's another tweet from BuzzFeed News. Andriy Telezenko has propelled himself from a minor functionary at the Ukrainian embassy to a bespoke purveyor of conspiracy theories to Republican senators, Russian media, and Rudy Giuliani. Joining us now to break it all down is BuzzFeed News reporter Ryan Broderick. Good morning. Good morning. So. What was this viral article about exactly in the first place, Ryan? Well, uh, yeah, speaking of conspiracy theories with no heart to them. uh, So what it seems like has happened is that a article written by Politico in 2017, which outlined some spurious claims that uh, a DNC operative was trying to solicit help from the Ukrainian embassy in the D.C., in D.C., um, has stuck around in Facebook and traveled through conservative Facebook groups for so long that it's now impacting the impeachment inquiry. It was literally asked about during Yovanovitch's deposition, as, as Miriam was talking about. So it, this, this article has had such a huge viral tr- uh, tale that it's, it's kind of incepted into the minds of Republicans right now. Wow. So how did Telezenko become so central to all of this? He was working at this uh, Ukrainian embassy in D.C., and he was interviewed by Politico, and he said that he was called to a meeting where he was asked by his uh, bosses to speak to this DNC operative, and he uh, was dismissed. Uh, His claims have been disputed everywhere in the very article that he's interviewed in. Everyone around him is saying that's not true, but he continues to pop up in right-wing media, uh, in Russian media, in uh, places like Reddit, 4chan. He is uh, the smoking gun. And he was literally interviewed by Rudy Giuliani uh, last March. Uh, So he's been bouncing around for about three years now as this uh, truth teller in the conservative circles. Well, tell us, how is he becoming this truth teller? I, mean, I know that people are saying he's not telling the truth, but you know, a lot of people, especially the Russian media, do see him saying the truth a lot of times. Right. So the way it, uh, I can tell it's worked is that he has uh, started giving, he started giving interviews to small websites, you know, uh, news sites in Ukraine saying, I'm this guy. I was there. I saw the, the collusion between Ukraine and the Democrats. I can tell you exactly what happened. And slowly but surely, those reports 
sort of getting aggregated to bigger websites. Uh, he was then interviewed by a reporter for Sputnik News on Periscope. That goes viral. Clips of it start traveling around YouTube, 4chan, Reddit. And then uh, bigger websites like Gateway Pundit see this. They pick up on it. And they, they like this theory because it, it creates an alternate reality that conservatives can deal with. Uh, and they, they go after these sort of things every time something happens that um, shakes up Trump's credibility, which is fairly often, right? So it's slowly gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and it seems to be working quite well. Not only was he interviewed by Rudy Giuliani, he's met with uh, Senator Ron Johnson and his staff over the summer, and he got his first mention on Fox News in September. So he, uh, you can literally uh, look at the traffic tail uh, around his name, and he's slowly becoming a bigger and bigger presence in conservative media because they're looking for anything that can prove that actually the Democrats are the ones that are corrupt and they were the ones that were colluding with a foreign power to disrupt the 2016 election. And it wasn't happening on the right side. Mm. Well, here's a tweet from Andre Telezenko himself this morning responding to your article, example of how the liberal media is going against anybody who has conservative views and is talking about the truth for the last three years just because the truth is uncomfortable. Um, Ryan, thoughts about this? Uh, you know, he's, uh, welcome to his opinion. <laughs> we, uh, we spoke at length. Uh, he seemed to be happy with our article. Uh, but, uh, once again, he's hustling really hard. If you go through his Twitter account, he spent basically all summer tweeting at any Republican he could find saying, you got to investigate Ukrainian collusion with the Democrats. It's all over his feed. He likes to take selfies with uh, politicians he meets. Um, it's, he's, he's hustling. He wants to make a name for himself. And it's working because right-wing media is so broken in this country following the 2016 election that it does operate in a completely different reality from our own. It's completely obsessed with things that really don't have a lot of basis. And I think the scary thing and the important thing to remember about all of this kind of wacky stuff is that these reports are being brought up in the impeachment inquiry. So the Republicans that are in these depositions are mentioning them, which means that this idea that we might have had that the Trump administration is the one pulling the puppet strings or whatever it is, it doesn't seem to be the case. It actually seems to be that they're just reading Facebook garbage and then spewing it out during these depositions, which is, I mean, boy, I don't even know what, how, to, uh, how to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah, that is incredibly helpful to, to connect the dots in that way. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. <laughs> Facebook garbage. I'm going to keep that one in my life. <laughs> well, up next, it's time for Fire Tweets, so stick right there. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets, and let's just do this thing. Yes. Fiends After Dark, you tweeted, if I were lactose intolerant, I would simply tolerate the lactose. <laughs> Just will yourself to feel better. Yes, you can just do anything by mind, mind powers. Yeah, there you go. God, that's funny. All right, Melissa Lozado, uh, you tweet it. Thinking about how I got a credit card to improve my credit instead of paying off my student loans. Okay, then I max out my credit card, and now I'll never be able to take out a loan to buy a house. Woo, that was a ride, and that's a ride for so many people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that is no fun at all, but also something that is very relatable, perhaps. Yeah. Too relatable. I will pray for you, sister. <laughs> Haley, you tweeted, you're dating for marriage, I'm dating for Twitter content. 
We are not the same. <laughs> I do see people like creating these narratives on Twitter to like, or doing things. Like I tell people sometimes, I'm like, oh, I went on that date for the story. But it's like, why am I just doing this to take it to Twitter so I can get a like, a retweet, a what? Also, I feel like this is maybe not the healthiest way to live your life. If you're just like not? doing it for the drama <laughs> that you can broadcast on various platforms. But how else do you know. find joy, Alex? In my like own personal relationship, you know, you know next week. I have no. I have, to bring up the, I have to bring up the fact that you are the best person to give this advice because you are married. Yes, and yet I feel like I try not to impose my <laughs> own relationship <laughs> beliefs on other people. But I think you are our possibility. Model, Everyone so. is free to make their own mistakes in life. Fine, That's fine. I, I will keep making them for us. <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline. What's your best dating story? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. Oof. All, All right, right so Dr. Sweets, you tweet it. Boom. Lizzo makes music for people with eyelashes on their headlights. I feel personally attacked by this. Um, <laughs> when I was a child, I wanted to have one of those like revamped VW bugs with the eyelashes. Do they blink? I, I'm not sure about that. I that would be too possible. much. A little bit creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Just like blinking. You know what? Like, let Lizzo live. Truth you hurts know? plays and you're blinking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tweet of the day. Yes. This comes from El Gordo. Fuck a fake ID. Who makes fake Disneyland annual passes? To which I have to say, like, a Disneyland pass is expensive. And sure so, is. please, someone fabricate this. Do you get thrown into, like, Disney jail if they catch you? Oh. Are they like, question. you're going in there with Goofy. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> That's in my head. I feel like you've been waiting for a moment to take, yeah. I have. Goofy goes to jail. Well, yeah. up next, we're speaking with Mississippi Attorney General candidate Jennifer Riley Collins. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. In a wide-ranging interview, Jennifer Riley Collins opened up about her faith, her race for attorney general, and what 2020 Democrats must do. Here's a tweet from Darren Sands. On the eve of the Mississippi attorney general, general election, Jennifer Riley Collins tells me she's not quite sure what Bible is read by evangelicals who say Trump's a vessel doing God's will on earth. You cannot show me anywhere in the Bible where God is a proponent of hate. Joining us now is Jennifer Riley Collins to discuss today's potentially historic election. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So if elected, you'd be the first black woman elected to a statewide office. What inspired you to run in the first place? So when I'm elected this evening at seven, when the polls close, uh, I will be the first African-American elected to a statewide position. And I decided to run because I believe that the people of Mississippi deserve a proven protector. Everything that um, God has allowed me to experience in my life has prepared me, has equipped me, has um, he's chosen me for such a time as this. Uh, Mississippi is at the bottom of so many polls. Uh, when we think about health care, education, economic opportunity, we're dead last. And it's time for Mississippi to move forward. And me sitting at the table as an African-American woman means that everybody gets to come to the table. You said you are also running because uh, hope is on the ballot. Um, why do you yes. think your constituents need hope right now? Because the people of Mississippi have been um, so suppressed, depressed, uh, oppressed, and um, people need to have some someone to believe in. And I want them to believe in me and, and what I believe about this state that we are um, better than Mississippi burning, that we are a state that is ready to move forward. And as we prepare to move forward, we need to make sure that our table is, re is representative of the strength of diversity. 
Mm. So you once served as the head of the ACLU in Mississippi and also in the Army. However, the Democratic candidate for governor in your state has not yet endorsed you. Why do you think your party is not stepping behind you right now in this race? for his endorsement, um, nor honestly do I want it. Uh, he is focused on his race as he should be. Uh, what I ask is that he be supportive of other nominees on the Democratic ballot, including uh, not only me, but other down ticket. That is what our party rule says. That's why I decided to run for attorney general because I believe in upholding the law and I believe in the rule of law and, uh, and the rule that governs the Mississippi Democratic that Democratic nominees support one another. I am supportive of his race. And so, to be very honest with you, at this point, um, care less whether or not he endorsed me. I didn't ask for it. I just asked him to be supportive of the ticket. Well, you have spoken out uh, about President Trump, and Mississippi, of course, is a Trump country. So how do you even uh, begin to appeal to those voters and supporters? So I, I begin to appeal to people because I uh, I am not um, looking to to serve a person, a man. Uh, the Bible that I read, you know, since we started this conversation, talking about that says that we put no man, uh, no one man. We we serve no one man. We serve mankind. Um, and so, uh, you know, people who even even people who may disagree um, with my party, I think, will agree with the fact that I am a proven protector. That I have demonstrated my commitment to upholding the principles and values of this nation upon which this nation was built. You know, the fact that I was willing to um, board a bus to go get on a plane to to go overseas and leave my children crying on the sidewalk, not wondering if I would ever see them again or they wondering if they would ever see me, has demonstrated that I believe in protecting this country, that I believe in putting our people first. And so as voters across uh, Mississippi are going to the polls today, I would ask that they keep that in mind, that I am a proven protector and that I have shown my commitment to the principles and values of this nation. Mm. Well, before we let you go, we have to bring up the fact that in Mississippi, there are still arcane Jim Crow laws that would allow that you for you to win the majority of the votes, but still not win the election. How do you see that impacting today's results for you? that that um, provision was in place when I started. It'll be in place when I finish, unfortunately. Uh, and it is my sincere hope that the, uh, I am confident that the citizens of Mississippi will um, elect me as Mississippi's next attorney general. And it is my hope that the members of the House of Representatives will put Mississippi first, uh, not necessarily their party, but will put Mississippi first and will properly seek me. Um, it is a Jim Crow era law. And, you know, to follow um, that provision would be a, uh, a scar, you know, and, and, and not seek me uh, would be a, another scar on Mississippi's face. And that does not help our state. It does not help our people. Uh, and it, you know, it would say that Mississippi is still burning. And I don't think that that is the um, story that we want told across America. Mm. Well, Jennifer, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for, 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 uh, lifting me up and I, I'm excited about this race and any of your voters who have family in Mississippi because everybody has something that comes from the South, please tell them to go vote and vote for Jennifer Riley Collins. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. And as she noted, today is election day, so everyone will be out here. So later on, I chat with Grammy-nominated singer Mary Lambert. But up next, Alex talks to talks the good place with actor Manny Jacinto. Love that show. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Lin-Manuel Miranda. Wow, he really looks forking good in a suit, huh? My wife to me already nodding at the end of this episode of The Good Place. I'm joined now by one of the stars of The Good Place who does look forking good in a suit, Manny Jacinto, welcome. I love how you guys opened with that, thank you. Yeah, of course. I almost spit out my water when you said that, but okay. Thanks, yeah. um, that's very flattering. Well, I am so sad that this is the last season of The Good Place. Yeah. Um, what does it feel like for you to be saying goodbye to all the amazing people you've worked with? It really sucks. It just, yeah, it really does. Like, we're we're a big family. Like, you know, we have uh, our parents, Ted and, and Kristen, and you have all the little babies and everything, and oh. we're all kind of grown up. <laughs> it sucks saying goodbye, you know? And, like, uh, this time, like, around April, when we're, we were supposed to, like, shoot again, possibly, mm. I think I'm going to be even more sad, just because I'm going to be like, where is everybody? We we're supposed to be doing this, but no, it's, it's going to be completely different. We're going to be on our separate mm. paths, and it's cool though. Like I mean, I can't wait to see what Will's going to be up to next, what Darcy's going to be up to next. It's going to be interesting and fun, I'm sure. Mm. So I know you can't spoil how it's going to end. No, I can't. But can you at least tell me if you're satisfied with the ending? Yeah, I think so. I think nowadays, like with TV's landscape, it's um, people kind of tend to dry out the series and whatnot. But I think Mike made the proper decision of giving this story a full and complete. Um, arc and you know not everybody is able to do that nowadays so yeah the way it ended the way that we filmed it the way that it kind of turned out I think it'd be pretty damn satisfactory okay good I'm happy to hear that um what was it like for you when you found out the ending yeah that also sucked <laughs> yeah um I panicked a little bit uh just because like the actor or artist mentality, you should never know if you're going to work again. But um, I kind of just buckled down and I was like, you know what, this is how it should end. We should give the audience, the fans, a proper ending and a proper farewell. Mm. Okay, well, your character, Jason Mendoza, is often described as a ding-dong, but also <laughs> a straight-up hottie, which oh, is geez. pretty different from your background in real life. You actually uh, studied engineering in college, yeah. right? So how did you get into acting? Um, it was just through a series of steps, like wanting to... I think at one point, really, what it, what it was was I was studying one day, and I was like looking up at the roof, wondering why I'm doing this with my life. And I was like, I could I could see every single step in my life and I didn't like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the the predictability of it all. And um, I was, there was all these dance shows that were going on and I really liked to dance. And I was like, you know what, let's just try something different. And I jumped into that and one thing led to another and kind of led me into acting. And it, uh, yeah, opened up a lot of doors and now here I am. Well, it seems to be going pretty well. And I have to say, nice. I, when I was doing some research for this segment, I looked uh, on Twitter and there is like so much love for you. I'm not sure if you're aware. <laughs> How does it feel to be a thirst trap? <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. It's it's a little, it's very weird. It's all the feelings. Um, it's, you know, they're nice, very descriptive compliments. But um, yeah, I don't really know how to handle that. I've never really looked at myself as that. So it's nice at the end Stay, of the day. Staying so humble. 
Yeah, it's it's weird, but nice as well. Yeah. Well, you posted uh, about your co-star Ted Danson that he is a motherforking hero. Yeah. After he was arrested with Jane Fonda um, at a climate protest, um, do you have any plans to join him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to. I mean, like, come on, he's like seventy, and he's still, you know, out there fighting for for the cause. It's like it's pretty damn amazing. It's something to look up to. So yeah, I mean, I would definitely love to be out there joining mm. the fight. Um, but yeah, I think I need to look for that next job first. Well, speaking we'll of next jobs, you're mm. going to be in the uh, Top Gun sequel. Yeah. Is there anything you can tell us about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say anything or else I'll, you know, maybe get a dart in the neck by somebody that comes out from Tom's team, <laughs> from Tom Cruise's team. But um, no, I can't really say much. All I, I mean, like the trailer has come out and a lot of people are excited. I'm really excited. Um, all I can say is that I, the, all I can say is that it will not disappoint. Okay, can you at least tell me what it was like to find out that you would be working on one of the most iconic sequels of all time? Uh, yeah, I was jumping up and down like when I got the call. What my agent I was waiting a little for a little bit for a while, and then what my what my manager uh, said. The first thing that she said was uh, when she called me. She was like, "Manny, do you feel the need?" And then <laughs> that just set her. And then right there. and then that was it. Well, I also learned that you're a big fan of uh, the Fast and the Furious franchise. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you do? You, have you thought about what your dream role would be if you could uh, be in that? There's a hashtag going around called uh, um, Justice for Han. So okay. if I could play maybe Han's brother to, to get him some justice or something like that, or yeah, something along maybe that storyline, that would be amazing. That would be it. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to play a, a quick game with you. Sure. It's called, Is This a Thing Jason Mendoza Did on The Good Place or A Real Thing That Happened in Florida? <laughs> and so I'm going to read you a headline, and you have to tell me if it's a real thing that happened in Florida or something that your character did. Okay. Got it? Okay, yeah, does that make sense? Okay, so the first headline is, DJ blows up speedboat of local rival DJ. <laughs> <laughs> that I that is a classic Jason Mendoza moment. I have to say that. Correct. Yay. Correct. Okay. The next headline is: Man winds up on roof in underwear with no memory of how he got there. A Florida man. I, that is correct. That I, is an actual yeah. thing that happened in Florida. Okay. I don't recall ever being in my underwear <laughs> in the show, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next one is. Florida man jumps off a surfboard, lands on a shark. Oh my, the, yeah, Florida man, but that's yeah. actually for real. Yeah, that is for, that's, that's for real. Happened. That is somebody oh my jumped off of a, a surfboard onto a shark, which sounds frankly terrifying. Yeah. Okay, here's another one. Local man crashes jet ski into manatee. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's the classic Mr. Mendoza moment. Yeah, yeah that has to be. Just... The manatee really gave it away. Yeah. Um, okay, here's another headline for you. Man falls asleep on railroad tracks in Pensacola. Train rolls over him. Oh my gosh, no. Um, fortunately, that's not a Jason Mendoza moment, so Florida man, I think. Yes, that, is, that happened okay. in Florida, yes. Okay, the next one and our final headline is Man suffocates inside safe in botched robbery <laughs> attempt of Mexican restaurant. Oh, Jason, you dummy. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, I do like uh, just how tickled you are by all of these, <laughs> like you're having a good laugh. It's yeah, yeah, like we were doing like uh, like sound bites the other day in the studio to to kind of, and we looked over some of the scenes and some of the words that comes out of Jason's mouth, I still can't believe <laughs> I he said those things. It's yeah, 
when you incredible. Well, when you encounter Floridians, um, are they uh, excited when they meet you, or are they upset that you have further tarnished their <laughs> reputation? I the first thing I ask is like, are, are you what? What are your feelings against? But they they love it. They they love you know being on the map and having some representation out there. And I have nothing but love for for Jacksonville and for Florida. So yeah, it, it goes it goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before you go, um, on January 6th, 2018, you were our Man Crush Monday oh, here on AntDM. You can see right here in all of your glory. So oh, I nice. just, I wanted to present you with this little certificate oh, certifying wow. your Man Crush Monday. Oh my gosh, yes. thank you guys. Yes, so we, we have signed it. I guess that makes it <laughs> as good as notarized. I'm not really sure, but yes, you can keep that. Keep it as a memory. Yeah, I will, I will frame this along with the uh, Blake Bortles football that <laughs> um, during the show. Yeah, wonderful. This is well, amazing. Thank you so much. This was really fun getting to do that quiz with you, <laughs> and uh, and you know can't wait to see the rest of the Good Place. So oh, thanks so much, Alex. Yeah. The Good Place airs Thursday nights on NBC. Up next, Zach is chatting with singer Mary Lambert. Here's a tweet from Sam. Literally, Mary Lambert's music and poems mean so much to me. Damn. And here's a tweet from Phoenix. 17 songs. Holy shit, you're blessing us, Mary. Here with me now is Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, Mary Lambert. Good morning. The most beloved person on Twitter, I have to say. People hear your name and just are like, yes, Mary. They're so sweet to me. I don't deserve it. I think you do. And we're going to get into why, because you've done such incredible things. Uh, So you're back with the release of your album, Grief Creature. It's your Mm -hmm. first full-length album since your last one in 2014. Yes. What inspired you to make this record? Um, well, it's called Grief Creature. Grief Creature. <laughs> yeah. Say? Oh, no, you oh. said Grief Creature. Oh, God. No, I was <laughs> just like, I'm har- I'm hearkening. Is that the... <laughs> I'm harking. Uh-huh. I'm hearkening back the memories of like... F- so I've been working on this album for five years, and it has like taken everything out of me mm-hmm. um, in like a good way and a, and a hard way. But it's like... I, I produced this album myself, mm-hmm. and there are 17 tracks, and um, it's really, I mean, it's super heavy. It's about, um, it's about my story. It's about, like, uh, you know, being, a, being abused as a child. Mm-hmm. It's about sexual assault. Mm-hmm. It's about bipolar disorder. It's about heartbreak. During the course of this album, I experienced a house fire, a breakup, um, a major bipolar <laughs> episode, mm-hmm. and... Um, and got to like really understand what, like how grief sits in the body and where it, how it manifests in your brain and the decisions that we make out of grief and, um, and how to heal after that. So this album was therapy for me. Mm. And not only did I like make it in a way that felt therapeutic and cathartic, when I started listening to it too, I was like, it was calming me down from panic attacks. It was mm. like, helping me get through my day. Yeah. And honestly, I didn't, I wasn't ready to release it for like a year. I was just sitting on it because I was like, I don't want anyone to, to discuss it. Like, I don't want. Because it's so personal. Yeah, Even the process of creating was personal. Mm -hmm. You used to be with Capitol Records. Mm -hmm. You no longer are there. Mm -hmm. And you did all of this by yourself, self-funding, producing everything. 
Was the purpose of that to make this therapeutic for you, in a sense, to make it so deeply personal on every single level? Yeah, I realized that after being on a label for so long and, um, you know, having producers that always were well-intentioned but were always from the lens of a straight, white, cis guy, kind of translating my voice to the listener, I felt like I was missing a piece of that, um of the music, mm-hmm. of like not being able to totally express myself in every fiber and every you know sound wave, that being the producer, I felt like I got to take ownership of that again and sit in that producer chair and really dictate exactly what the listener hears down to the reverb, down to mm-hmm. like the snare crack, you know, mm-hmm. that I was, that I was the, I was the judge, jury, executioner, all of it. Like I got to do it all yeah. and that way, no matter what happens with it, I know that it's the best expression of myself possible. Mm. You know? Yeah. And you did that with 16 out of 17 tracks. Mm-hmm. All of it. Yes. Much. And as you <laughs> mentioned, it is about some really traumatic things you went through. Do you feel now hearing those songs now, is it helping you kind of reclaim those narratives that happened for you? Absolutely. I think, I, you know, I talk about my trauma quite a bit and I, I released a collection of poetry and in that poetry book, I talk a lot about that trauma. Um, I talk about it in interviews. I don't mind speaking about it, but it's, it is scary when it gets out of your control mm-hmm. um, and you know a new story will pick it up and they'll like the headline is about you know being molested by my dad yeah. and I'm like that's not what I want to read at like seven in the morning yeah. when I haven't been able to control that story because it's mine mm-hmm. and so to take ownership back over it and say um, this is this is my narrative mm-hmm. this is my story um, this is what it means to me. This is how I've gotten through it. And here is an invitation for other people who have experienced similar traumas of, of how we survive and how we can process and how we can grow together. Mm, and when you're writing these songs, you know, it sounds like that process has to be really, you know, unearthing a lot of feelings. Mm. Are you thinking about the public at that time or is that just for you? It's a great question. I don't. I think uh, it's all super insular and feels sacred. It feels like a sort of divine connection to God. Mm. And so that's what I spent the better part of like four years doing. And when I think about releasing or performing, that's the invitation. That's the sharing and the extension of myself that I get to, I get to, you know, reach my hand out and and have somebody come back and say, me too, that happened to me too. Or, Mm. or I, you know, I experiencing I'm experiencing or experience something similar. And that's where that sort of group therapy element of the shows comes in. And um, and and for that, I have great care of how the listener hears it. And um, but yeah, the beginning part is just all like I've written I've written hundreds of songs that I'll never release because it's not they're they're sacred. They're yeah. they were for me. Yeah. That doesn't make But these are for everyone else. Yes. For you all to share together. Yes. Got it, got it. Well, one of these songs is with Malcolm Moore. Yes. It's full circle for you. Uh, you know, in the song that's called House of Mirrors. Mm-hmm. What was the process of coming back together to create that work? Well, I reached out to Malcolm Moore. Um, you know, we've stayed in touch. I, I come out and do a few shows with him um, once in a while. And I said, you know, do you want to work on a song? And, and he was like, yeah. And I sent him one of the songs on the record. And um, and he sent me this email back. And I, at first I was like, oh, I'm re- I've been rejected. But he said, this 
this song is, is you. This song is your voice. Let's make something together. Let's make something from scratch. So, um, so I called our friend uh, Budo up. And he is, uh, Josh Karp is um, his name. And he worked on Ben's last record, uh, Macklemore's last, mm-hmm. last record. And um, we all got in a room together and we all wrote this song together. And I think the, the vibe of it just started um, coming organically. And it was really neat to take the sound files and like... And produce it, and to be like, oh my god, I'm producing this a song that, like, you know, that that I, you know, I had this experience once mm-hmm. before, but I now I have more control over it, yeah. and um, and you know, Buddha was a great part of the writing process and did some, mm-hmm. um, you know, initial production on it too. So it just feels very collaborative. Yes, it sounds yeah. a bit of a collaborative, and like good friends coming back yes, together. Yes, it was cool. It has to be, because you know, Same Love, yeah. massive record everywhere. You performed at the Grammys. Mm-hmm. Madonna joined you. Mm-hmm. Latifah famously married a bunch of gays, yeah. which I love <laughs> as a single gay person. What did that moment feel like to you? Did it feel like historic, or the, did it feel historic at that time? It did. Yeah, I remember having this feeling of like, Oh, this is big. This is mm-hmm. this is a big deal. This is like, this is. It's not just. Um, it wasn't just a ego pat. It was also like, oh, we're doing something that's really progressive, and we're doing something that like is uh, you know m- might be remembered. Yeah. And it felt like it felt surreal. Just like I felt like I was having an out of body experience. Just just watching it. Like when I watch back the the footage, I'm like. Yeah, I don't remember doing that. You kind of black out, you know. Um, Madonna has that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, what's it like watching it today? You know, that was 2012. President mm-hmm. Obama was in office. LGBTQ rights were still, we didn't even have same-sex marriage then. Yeah. Your song became an anthem for that moment. Um, but now, 2019, things are a bit different for us. Yeah. What's it like to think about that moment now and where we're at today as queer people? I just think there's so much work to do, and I'm glad. I think I think Same Love really encapsulated uh, a moment in time. Mm-hmm. I think it was it was the right song for the right time at the right moment. All of the, the climate was right for it. It would not be a song that I think would do well today, and I think that's probably a good thing. I think that means that there's been progress, but I also think that there's urgency and other issues of the queer spectrum that mm-hmm. like really need to be um, more at the forefront of our issues of like trans issues and like focusing on intersectionality and realizing that like this this song was elevated by um, you know a straight white cis guy yeah. and like yeah that sh- there should be we should critique it we should yeah. we should pull it apart and um, but I think it does it was a marker of that time and it was mm-hmm. successful because of that time, well, sure. you know? Yeah, I mean, to have Malcolm Moore, who is a, a considered a rapper by most people, an R&B artist, um, to be speaking out about same-sex marriage was a huge, huge thing. And yeah. it helped guide America to a new place. And it also reminds me of, you know, Taylor Swift recently came out with a song that was very gay anthem. Mm-hmm. And you in the, I think the Boston Globe mentioned that in a recent appearance at Berkeley, yes. you called yourself the gay Taylor Swift <laughs> and the stress of that. <laughs> So, Miss Gay Taylor Swift, no. what did you mean by that? Because, because that's a big statement. No, no, no. I said that I, when I was on Capitol Records, I felt like they wanted me to be the Gay Taylor Swift. Got it. And I was like, I can't do it. Sure. <laughs> what do you think is a barrier of trying to be the Gay Taylor Swift? Um, honestly, I think it's, I don't know how, uh, how, People like that do it. My project team at Capitol was Katy Perry's project team. And the schedule that I was under, the mm-hmm. stress that I was under, the, I, I mean, I don't want to say, it's not for, I don't, 
I don't know what everybody's life is like or their process is like, but f- when I was there and when I um, was in that sphere, and it wasn't just the label, it was kind of just the culture around yeah. like celebrity and, and the music and getting your hit, you know? It's so fear-based. Mm-hmm. It's so, like, you're just so scared and you never really get to celebrate because... You know, if the if the label put in a million dollars for your single, they're expecting to make that million dollars back. And if they don't, you're a failure. Mm. And so how do you not get that in your head? And as your team grows, then you're expected to make more money. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember I, you know, I hadn't seen my family in like a year. And um, I was really excited to come home for Thanksgiving. And I was, I did this show in LA and and I got a call from my manager and he said I'm sorry they took away Thanksgiving you're going to Australia and I was like I should be excited that I'm going to Australia but I didn't ever get to be excited because it was so I was so panicky all the time Mm -hmm. and props to anybody that can hack it but I just couldn't I yeah (laughs) I am I love to be home I love my dogs I love I love the woods (laughs) (laughs) I love eating good food yes no diet (laughs) I love sleeping and naps yeah I can't hack it. So <laughs> hopefully that this like this new record will allow that sort of sense of safety and mm-hmm. space and um, and I can kind of put that yeah. dream of being the gay Taylor Swift yeah. aside. But I, I have to say, think. I think letting that dream go away and just being Mary Lambert mm-hmm. created the space for you to do such a Yeah, I think so, so too. It has to feel really good. Yes, thank you. So, you know, but well, beyond being the gay Taylor Swift and an LGBTQ <laughs> advocate, you're also an advocate for body positivity. Mm-hmm. And last week you tweeted... Hey, babe, it's your daily reminder that there's nothing wrong with your body just in case you might need it. Mm. Why do you think it's so important that that message gets out for people now more than ever? I think that as we've um, grown and expanded our language to include, um, you know, body positivity and, and fat activism, we are using the language, but we haven't really adapted the ideology. Mm-hmm. And I think for fat people, there's still this element of you're failing at being thin mm-hmm. and that it's, you always have to be sort of a work in progress. And, think about what you're what you're eating at all times and obsess over it and um having something like that take up that much bandwidth is letting go of your power in a a really sad way so i just i i think there's so much more that we could be doing with that bandwidth in our brain that i don't know feels feels oppressive amen you out here preaching girl (laughs) well i can sit here and talk to you all day but i think we gotta go we both have other things to do today so thank you so much for being here and congratulations on such a big record that is coming well you can check out mary's album grief preacher on november 15th but up next more empty doing Welcome back. That was just a wonderful conversation with Mary. Uh, I'm like, kind of like, uh, what, very energized, yeah. feeling jittery, because she was just so... Good vibes. So many good vibes. Yeah. And she just like, to share and be have so much strength in sharing all of these things. I mean, what she goes through in this album is really hard stuff, and it was happening back to back to back. So for her to sit here and be like, you know what, I'm telling my story, I'm going to stand in this truth and also share it so you can too is... I know, just iconic. I also, something I I think I really admire about people is when they know themselves to be like, this is not a Mm -hmm. good situation for me and I'm going to like do what I need to do in my own, you know, on my own time. And which she she did that. And when she made the note and everyone hear this note, she said, I have over a hundred songs I won't release, but they're just for me. And I did release these. 
you can create work that's just for you and help yourself process things and work through your own shit in private and then choose what you do share with people. You ain't got to let the floodgates open if you're not ready to do so. So I think knowing boundaries, as she's talking about boundary setting, really important for mental health. Hmm. So go off Mary Lambert. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But also before we move on to these treats, Manny, Jacinto. Just yes. so coy yes. about being such a thirst trap. I know. See, see. here's my question. It was, at first, I was like trying to gauge how much of the thirst trap content he has mm-hmm. seen. And then he he did reference a uh, Twitter hashtag related to something different later, which made oh. me at least know he does go he's on watching. Twitter. So you know, he's, he's watching. He probably has a burner account, like Mitt Romney. <laughs> like, 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 like. Just, just for all the family. And we're going to find it, Manning. Yes. I swear. Well, here are your tweets. <laughs> we asked, have you ever had a friendship turn into a relationship? And Greg tweeted, yep. Met in 2007, started dating in 2008, married since 2011. Oh, that's so sweet. Congratulations, Greg. Yeah, I don't know. I just have always been in situations where we met in like a dating context. Mm -hmm. And so it started off going on dates. We weren't like friends to begin with. So it was never like when you were on Tinder, it wasn't like a question of like, oh, was this a date or not? It was kind of. Even with Lisa, we like met and then just went on dates, you know? So so funny. So I always meet people in a friend context and stay friends. Um, So. <laughs> broke my heart a little tiny bit, but you said it, okay? I'm gonna go now. Talk to Mary Lambert. All right. <laughs> After our conversation about Andre Telezenko, Christian tweeted, "Wish I could go from low-level employee to conspiracy theory peddler." And I just say, you know, um, we all have dreams in life. Yes, Christian, with his typical contrarian take. Yes, you know? if that is your journey, Christian. We support you. <laughs> just don't get wrapped up in Giuliani's mess. There you I don't go. think you want to do that. Well, thank you to our guests today, Miriam Elder, Brian Broderick, Jennifer Riley Collins, Mary Lambert, and Manny Jacinto. We'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. 